Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Kelvin Ng from Yale University. In Dockside Reading, Isabel Hofmeyer traces the relationship among print culture, colonialism, and the ocean through the institution of the British Colonial Custom House. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Dockside Customs officials would leave through publications looking for obscenity, politically objectionable materials, or reprints of British copyrighted works, often dumping these condemned goods into the water. These practices, echoing other colonial imaginaries of the ocean as a space for erasing incriminating evidence of the violence of empire, informed later censorship regimes under apartheid in South Africa. By tracking printed matter from ship to shore, Hofmeyer shows how literary institutions like copyright and censorship were shaped by colonial control of coastal waters. Set in the environmental context of the colonial port city, Dockside Reading explores how imperialism colonizes water. Hofmeyer ex- examines this theme through the concept of hydrocolonialism, which puts together land and sea, empire, and environment. Over the course of our conversation, we'll talk about Professor Isabel Hofmeyer's intellectually provocative approach to literary history, discuss new theoretical and methodological openings in Indian Ocean studies, and delve deep into the framework of hydrocolonialism. To learn about those issues and more, join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoyed the book, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation as well. Today I'm here to talk to Professor Isabel Hofmeyer, the author of the dazzling book, Dockside Reading, Hydrocolonialism and the Custom House. Through the course of our conversation, we will inhabit the view from the dockside in our discussion of colonialism and its discontents, as well as new theoretical and methodological approaches to oceanic studies. Isabel Hofmeyer is Professor Emeritus at the University of the Witwatersrand and Global Distinguished Professor at New York University. She received her PhD from the University of the Witwatersrand. She is author of The Portable Bunyan, A Transnational History, and Gandhi's Printing Press, Experiments in Slow Reading. Along with Antoinette Burton, she co-edited 10 books that shaped the British Empire, creating an imperial commons. Her articles have been published in the American Historical Review, Social Dynamics, PMLA, Comparative Studies of South Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, and the Journal of African History, to name just a few. Welcome, Isabel, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your greatly enjoyable book today. Hello. Uh, could you perhaps start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is, where did you grow up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and any influential mentors you had? Hi, Kelvin. 70, about 70 miles west of Johannesburg, which is in the interior of the country. Um, I was uh, 
but I've spent most of my adult life in Johannesburg. Um, I really got interested, I think, in the areas in which I work through becoming drawn into South African literature in the early 1970s. Um, and it was a very new and vibrant uh, area that was emerging, as you can imagine, in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, English departments in South Africa were still very colonial. Uh, they were still very invested in the uh, British tradition. And so this was a very exciting uh, and uh, really vibrant field. Um, the mentors, I think, was uh, there was a scholar called Tim Cousins who had been teaching on African and South African literature since the late uh, 1960s. Um, and then I was also... Uh, uh, very fortunate to spend most of my career in the Department of African Literature, which is in, was in fact uh, established by Tim Cousins and headed up by Eskia Mpatlele. And over really about three decades, I learned a great deal from my colleagues, including a very long-standing and dear colleague, Beggy Siswe-Peterson, uh, whom we lost tragically to COVID last year. Thank you so much for that. Uh, and I'm really sorry to hear about that. Um, but I think that, you know, uh, your acknowledgement section in this book was really such a marvel. Um, and I think that really acknowledging the conditions of intellectual labor and uh, scholarly production, I think, um, and sort of tying that into the architecture of the book itself, I thought that that was just really sort of marvelously done. Um, here, perhaps I want to shift gears slightly to, to talk about how you came to write Docsite Reading. How did the idea develop? Uh, what were the most pressing conceptual questions that you sought to address? What the research process was like? And how was your writing experience uh, throughout the course of uh, writing this book? Okay. The book really, I think, took shape in the wake of my last book, which was Gandhi's Printing Press Experiments in Slow Reading. And I learned through that that Gandhi was a great opponent of copyright. So when I finished that book, I was interested to understand was, you know, was this an unusual position or not? How, in fact, did colonial copyright work? So I went fossicking about, and that um, work, of course, led me unexpectedly to the Custom House, uh, because, you know, as you know uh, from reading the book, uh, most printed matter came from outside the colony, was funneled through the port city, and the people who checked it were the customs officials. I then set off to go and look at this archive with some trepidation, expecting to find really terribly dry and boring reports on tax and tariff. And I found this absolutely fascinating archive full of objects. Some of them were often real objects, swatches of fabric, packets of seeds. But there were also much of the material was debates about what an object actually was. You know, was this butter or margarine? Was this a young pulchard or a sardine? Um, was there a difference between medicinal herbs and tea? So, so that's how I, I, I really became drawn into it. And then um, I, I think also at the same time, if I'd written this book, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I think I would have written a much drier book, uh, which might only have looked at the copyright and the censorship. But I was very aware, you know, that we are in the age of the Anthropocene, that we are facing all of this climate catastrophe, and that one has to make one's work somehow speak to um you know, more environmental concerns. So I then became interested in whether I could link themes of printed matter and print culture into uh, broader environmental issues. Thank you so much for that. And I really believe that your book represents one of the most methodologically exciting recent new works in eco-criticism and your attempt to sort of bring together empire and environment by adopting the perspective from, from the, uh, the doc site, I think, was just really incredibly done. And I'm really excited to speak a bit more to you about that uh, in a bit. Uh, but before that, I, I would just like to pose that as a scholar who's situated between and across several fields, so African studies, Indian Ocean history, literary studies, can you tell us a bit more about how you became interested in oceanic studies as a methodological approach, uh, considering your interest in the circulation of texts and textual cultures how did your engagement with the literature on the Indian Ocean inform your writing? And what can area studies fields such as African or South Asian studies stand to gain from, from these oceanic approaches? Great, thanks. Um, I, I think the 
where it really started was with South Africa's political transition in the early 90s. So it was the end of legal apartheid and the movement into democracy. But that movement into democracy was also a movement into this rapidly globalizing world. So whereas much South African academic work had been largely focused on South Africa and the anti-apartheid struggle, um, some scholars started to say we had to look outwards and think about you know, much more transnational and globalized themes. And so also at the same time, I think I was particularly interested in how one might pursue transnational or globalized work within the global south itself or in what was then called the third world. So rather than thinking about transnationalism only as a north-south question, could you think about it um, within the global south? And of course, the Indian Ocean then presents itself as a very useful arena for those sorts of things. It's the oldest long-distance trans-oceanic trading arena. Um, And so it's the site of much, you know, many thousands of years of interaction uh, between countries that are in the global south. Uh, There was also a lot of interest of exchanges between South Africa and India. Um, And so I got drawn into work on the Indian Ocean. But then, of course, what has become apparent is that much of that work is really what we might regard as sort of old school oceanic studies, because it's really concerned with the ocean as a backdrop. Um, and it's a sort of um, surface for human movement at sea. And then, of course, with the rise of the Anthropocene and the, the you know, pressing environmental issues, it became really much more important to start thinking then about those, but both the important surface themes, but also to think much more about the materiality of the ocean and to try and really engage with that as much as possible. Thank you so much for that, because when I was reading your book, I thought that like part of me was thinking, you know, how far the field of oceanic studies had come, you know, from earlier studies, uh, thinking Kian Chaudhary on trade and thinking uh, all this really substantial corpus and work on Indian Ocean connections and networks and uh, merchant networks um, to your work, which really represents an attempt at thinking seriously about the materiality of the ocean, its wetness, its flows, its currents. And I thought that, you know, like for me, I, I thought that they represented just an incredibly exciting new, new sort of uh, domain of study for, for oceanic studies. So now let's turn more directly to the book and its chapters. Uh, as Professor Hofmeyer had mentioned, this book is an incredibly creative reading of the hermeneutics of, of censorship, uh, focusing primarily on the customs as an institution set in the context of Southern Africa, but with an attentive gaze to its developments and connections in Australia, Jamaica, India, and Canada. It foregrounds Docksite reading as a site of hydrocoloniality, whose protocols and procedures unfold across the chapters of the book. So in addition to an introduction and a conclusion, it contains four chapters, each highlighting a different customs reading regime. Can you share with us how you decided to structure the organization of the book? What informed this literary approach to structuring the narrative of the text? And how do you see the relationship between the form and the content of, of the text? Okay, thank you. Um, so the book, of course, is arranged around two case studies, the one around copyright and the one about around censorship. So those were obviously two sort of central parts of the book. But I was very keen to give a very concrete and clear sense of colonial customs. So customs is often quite an obscure part of government and colonial customs is extremely obscure. Um, And one of the arguments of this book is that it's the material practices on the dock side that shape ideas about books and reading. So I wanted to then illustrate very, you know, in considerable detail what it was like to be, to work in customs, to be on the dock side. Um, So there's a chapter on, and and then I also wanted to try and bring in people, you know, so that it would be not simply a sort of abstract story. So, you know, the one chapter is around George Rutherford, as you know, who was spent his career in customs in various parts of the world. Um, And then uh, those, that material in turn was then you know, I had to give it the framings, so I used this idea of hydrocolonialism. And in the conclusion, I was very keen 
to bring it back to quite clearly to literary issues because, you know, I'm a literary scholar and that's sort of where my heart is. So the conclusion then tries to spell out what are some of the implications of all of this for, you know, the post-colonial novel generally, but South African, the South African novel specifically. Thank you so much for that. And uh, to delve really into the introduction, perhaps we should begin as you do in a book, which is in the custom house at Durban. It is noisome, it's wet, it's humid, it's peopled by an army of workers in transport or, and on the docks, responsible for manning the boats uh, in the harbour and for the heavy lifting on the wharves. Today, Durban is the largest and bu- busiest shipping terminal in, in Africa. But my sense is that you know very few of us actually have um, an idea of the material environment of the port space itself. So could you perhaps sketch a picture of what the environment of the dock site might be, might be like for, for our listeners? Why begin from the dock site and how is it a distinct space from other parts of the city? Okay. Um, I think the, perhaps the easiest is let me read you a quote, which I think is actually not in the book, but is very useful. It's a description of the Durban dock site, probably in the very late... Um, uh, 19th century or possibly early 20th century. So let me just find that quote. Um, okay, so the it's a person describing the docks and it says, once in the docks itself, you will encounter a bustling scene. Chains jangle, barrows rumble, sirens hoot, locomotives scream, winches grumble, sailors ho-ho, and gangs of laborers sing and chant. Gangways, shoots, ropes, and cranes block the wharves, while throngs of stevedores, passengers, sailors, railwaymen, policemen, and clerks mill about. So I think that quote captures quite nicely, you know, the intense activity, all of, and also as well the very many different kind of interests and groups on the dockside. So the stevedores, the passengers, the sailors, the railway department, there's a police department. Um, and so, as I can say, working on the dockside, it came to remind me a bit of universities where you have all of these different departments, you know, so the dockside as well has all of these different departments of customs, harbour masters, railways, police, etc. And of course, um, they often are at loggerheads with each other and argue. So there are also all of these sort of micro-political processes playing out on the dockside. Also just importantly, I think the dockside is a semiotically very in- dense in, um, environment, partly because, you know, the, the business of getting a ship to into harbour and then unloading it um, it is both dangerous, you know, to get the ship from sea uh, to 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 into, in, in, into the harbour itself. Um, so the, it's an environment full of signals and flares and boys and flags and documents and hand signals. And so this also was important because customs is also part of the semiotic environment and they have all of these kinds of systems and forms of inscription that they work with. So I think all of those things are really important in, in, in you know, understanding um, the nature of the dockside and how it shapes this, these particular reading uh, practices. Thank you so much for that. I, I really appreciated what you said about the dock site as uh, also a space for semiotic activity. And I think that that brings us very nicely to the two terms that you introduce in the introduction of the book, uh, dock site reading and hydrocolonialism, which constitute the broader sort of theoretical framework for contextualizing uh, the reading protocols under examination. So let's begin with that first term, dock site reading. What are the protocols most characteristic of dockside reading? How did these procedures develop? And what were the political and epistemological conditions undergirding their emergence? Okay, thank you. So dockside reading, just very briefly and in a nutshell, um, I argue is the sets of procedures and protocols that are applied to cargo are then transferred to books. And So very briefly, these procedures in terms of dealing with cargo 
would be firstly to look at the exterior of cargo. So cargo um, would have various forms of inscriptions, which would, you know, symbols for where the, this thing had come from, where it was going to, which port it was headed to. Um, and in fact, I can just say a very common everyday example is, you know, if you order something, say, from Ikea, there'll be a sign on the box saying this way up. Um, you know, it's that sort of logistical inscription. So mostly customs officials would be reading that exoskeleton of the cargo with its inscriptions, cross-checking it with particular kinds of documents. And if everything was in order, the you know, the consignment would continue. However, if there was something suspicious or something didn't add up, the cargo would be stopped and opened. And then the second set of procedures they would use would be counting, sampling, sniffing, you know, if it was particular, some sort of food stuff, they would feel if it was material. Um, uh, sampling, as I say, was very important. Um, so they would then start to engage with this object um, and they would try and sort of get the measurement, you know, the full measure of this object. So they would assay the objects. So that's the procedure that they used. And the argument I make is that these procedures, in fact, are applied to books. So books then are simply forms of cargo. And what they tend to do is to read the outside of the book then as a kind of logistical exoskeleton. So, for example, they would read maybe the title or particularly the argument I make is they would look possibly at copyright as a kind of logistical sign. It's a sign of where this thing came from, where it was manufactured. Um, and then if they, in dealing with a book, they were very reluctant readers. They did not see reading as part of their job description. So they would make resort then to these other techniques, the general techniques that they had. Most They would sample. They would, you know, maybe flip through. They might smell the book. Um, but they would just try and extract one or two paragraphs which demonstrated, look, here's a contaminated paragraph and here's a contaminated paragraph. So the whole thing is contaminated. So, for example, it would be similar to foodstuffs. We found a tin and this tin is clearly contaminated. So we assume, therefore, that the whole thing is contaminated. So that was that's the, the kind of um, you know argument that I was making about dockside reading, just in terms of the broader sort of, um, I think your question was about the political, I suppose, an ideological context of this. And that is very much linked to the making of the colonial maritime frontier. And obviously, that colonial maritime frontier is very much about processes of of inclusion and exclusion. So constructing this global color line in which certain categories of people are accepted and other categories of people are not. Um, and so I think the, these also these forms, um, you know, the, 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 both the censorship and the copyright are part of that bigger sort of setting and apparatus. So the copyright on the one hand, can be treated as a form of inclusion to say, here, this is a sign, this book has been made in Britain, um, therefore it has the imprimatur of the, metrop you know, the imperial metropolis, and so it must be upstanding and implicitly white. So it can be admitted. The censorship, obviously, is a form of exclusion to say this text is contaminated, it's undesirable in some ways, and so it, 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 it must be kept out. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that here you really sort of uh, lucidly trace the procedures of dockside reading across uh, four different sites, uh, objects, bodies, books, and reading. And here I think I get a really clear sense of how uh, the boundaries of uh, the logics of these uh, disparate sites sort of bleed into each other, that the dockside governance of objects had implications for the racialization of bodies, the regulation of books, and the development of uh, certain practices of reading. I want to turn now perhaps to the second conceptual term that you introduce, which is hydrocolonialism. So I first became acquainted with this framework in your uh, 2017 article, uh, Oceanic Routes, Post-it Notes on Hydrocolonialism in Comparative Literature, and your 2019 article, Provisional Notes on Hydrocolonialism in English Language Notes. Here in your book, you further elaborate the theoretical import of the term as encompassing the following colonization by way of water, 
colonization of water, a colony on or in water, colonization through water, and colonization of the idea of water. Could you briefly elaborate on these different definitional uses to which the term hydrocolonialism may be put? And what was, when you were sort of coining this term hydrocolonialism, and I know that that was sort of really in conversation with uh, other scholars who have worked on the post-colony, what is the theoretical and methodological import of the term? In other words, what is the view of the relationship between colonialism and the materiality of the watery environments it occurs on uh, enable us to see as as historians, as scholars, as uh, um, those interested in the Indian Ocean. Okay, thank, thank, thank you. So did we, I think, just begin by saying that the term hydrocolonialism is very much modelled on the term of post-colonialism. So it's a term with a really a huge remit, you know, and it's intended to be a highly portable term. Um and in so fact, you know, it's this book is really sort of putting the term out there and saying, I believe this is a really productive term that can be used in many, many different kind of contexts. Um, this book is simply one example, you know, of how this term might be used. If I could also just say um, it forms, you know, there are many, many exciting approaches emerging at the moment, you know, critical oceanic studies, blue humanities, immersive methodologies, wet ontologies. You know, there's a really very exciting set of, um, you know, I suppose cultural studies approaches emerging around both oceanic and, you know, water more generally. And so hydrocolonialism, I think, is a fellow traveller of those terms, you know, and is joining that whole community. Um, I think, in its, I suppose, in its absolutely broadest terms, it's trying to think about, um, you know, what happens if we think about the entire sort of hydrological cycle and impose that on imperial and post-imperial cartographies. So, in again, in the very broadest terms, it would require us to think, you know, laterally across that space, vertically, very importantly, because once you're thinking about the hydrological cycle, you've got to think up, you know, into the atmosphere and clouds and rain, and you've got to think down to the bottom of the ocean. And then also, obviously, contrapuntally, which is, you know, one of the, the great methods of post-colonial studies. So to think contrapuntally between all of these different sort of hydro-imaginaries and water worlds that make up empire. So I think, you know, that's, it's a very, very broad remit. I mean, you know, I'm aware that it's this huge term, but it's really sort of, as I say, just joining this whole congregation of scholars who are trying to make sense of this and just to say, look, you know, I think it it can open up ways of thinking. I think in terms of the particular areas that it gets us to think about, um, I think, you know, it draws uh, attention, uh, you know, it, it requires us, I think, to think much more closely about water. So, I mean, a very obvious example is if you're looking at patterns of land dispossession, they're often very much drif- dri- driven by water resources. Um, for me, also, what I really became interested in in this book um, is uh, was to think about what I call creolized water. So to think about that in any post-colonial context, if you're looking at a body of water, you are looking at an incredibly busy space, which is full of deities and spirits and, um, you know, and mermaid-like creatures and jinns and all sorts of things. Um, and I think that those forms of imaginary. So water, in fact, I think is one of the most kind of effective popular archives for storing forms of pre-colonial memory. Um, And so those forms actually are very, very persistent and very, you know, remain very, very very powerful. Um, So, you know, and and of course, I mean, it could be used in all sorts of ways. Um, I've recently done work with my colleague Sean Lavery and Sarah Nuttall, we've edited a special issue of a journal called Interventions, uh, and it's called Reading for Water. So we're proposing, you know, that as a kind of my, almost like a micro method. And what it, the, the journal is people returned to a set of Southern African novels and reread them, paying very, very close attention to water, you know, and that produced all sorts of really, you know, fascinating new insights 
um, and new kind of genealogies of South African literature itself. Thank you so much for that. And I, I would recommend all our listeners really to, to go check out this uh, special issue in Interventions, Reading for Water, that's pivoted around three seminal South African novels. So Agat, The, Ra- uh, the Wrath of the Ancestors, and Life and Times of Michael Kay. Um, but I think that uh, in developing the idea of hydro- hydrocolonialism, what I found most interesting were the two sort of dimensions that you that you focused on. First being that it has methodological um, stakes and import for thinking across different skills. So you 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 sort of really elucidate how hydrocolonialism enables us to um, think across high, middle, and low skills. So from mega skill meteorological patterns to coastal morphology and water formations to the depth of the ocean, and I found that to be a really sort of uh, a really fruitful way of thinking about the different skills at which hydrocolonialism may sort of uh, occur or play out. The other thing that I found really sort of fruitful in this framework was that you brought together two seemingly disjunctive processes. So on one hand, the colonization of water, and on the other hand, the creolization of water within the same analytic frame. And here, I would just like to invite you to talk a bit about that second uh, intervention, because I found that to be just incredibly innovative. And I was wondering if you talk a bit more about the the relationship between colonization and creolization. Is it one of co-constitution? Is it a causal relationship? Is it uh, like what, how do these two processes uh, interrelated to, to one another? Okay, so I suppose it is. It's you know, colonization and creolization generally go closely together. Um, we and often I think colonization sort of enforce uh, brings it almost as a, a sort of you know a, a sort of quite a violent violent forms of creolization. I think in in this case, so I was sort of thinking about them both as competing um, processes, but also overlapping processes. So obviously in terms of competing processes, the colonization of water is very important, you know, in terms of establishment of um, port cities, uh, proclamation of territorial waters, um, submarine, I think our submarine engineering also as a way of sort of claiming the undersea. Um, you know, so there are all these ways in which that, you know, the, the, the coastal belt particularly comes to be sort of occupied at all levels. Um, and, uh, um, you know, and obviously that has implications, for example, for um, in many African societies, especially in Southern Africa, the ocean is one of the realms of the ancestors. So um, it, it, the, the beach then is a site of pilgrimage, of spiritual healing, of regeneration, and very often then the, the, the literal colonization of the port city, the um, construction of the beach as the space of white leisure excludes those people. So it's sort of starts to kind of minimize the creolization of water. But I think on, on, on the other hand, um, the colonization itself brings in certain hydro-imaginaries, and one of those is a great sort of mystique of the ocean, um, and particularly this idea of the ocean as the great site of sort of heroic white masculinity. Um, and that becomes, I think, also a set of imaginaries that then enters into um uh, you know, it enters into circulation. And so, for example, the, it can, can become a sort of imaginary of the ocean itself where you have, um, you know, black travelers or sailors, um, not, not seeking to really mimic that, but sort of partly attracted or alerted to the ocean through these particular kinds of imaginaries. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thank you so much for that. And here, I think, is a good point to perhaps turn to the first chapter of your book, uh, The Custom House and Hydrocolonial Governance. 
the first chapter examines the institutional history of customs establishments from its earliest inception as an instrument of taxation and revenue generation in England through to its subsequent instantiation as colonial customs in several plantation ports involved in the slave trade. Could you briefly walk us through this history? And what I found really interesting was that you traced this history by focusing on one George Rutherford. Uh, what, why is the itinerary of his career uh, germane to your account of these broader transitions, the transition that you trace from the feudal institution of customs in London to the mercantilist logics of the colonial customs? And how do the modes and mechanisms of hydrocolonial governance shift across the 19th century? Okay, thank you. So, um, uh, I think very much the idea of colonial customs is obviously invented across both of the imperial metropole and the empire at large. And as you say, I think it's a joint production between the sort of feudal heritages of the London Customs House um, and, and obviously its outposts, along with the practices that emerge then in plantation uh, port cities. And there, you know, customs were ex- deeply involved in um, the, the, the carceral procedures attached to the Atlantic slave trade. Um, customs officials would often go into the hold to count the bodies of enslaved people um, to, you know, part of the carceral, I suppose, relay along which uh, enslaved people were were passed and customs was one of those. Um, So I think they, um, one of their their modes, if you like, of governance is this drawing on both a feudal uh, heritage and then adding in this, this, you know, pretensions of um, a, almost of a slave-owning class. And I think there were many customs officials who would have owned enslaved people. Um, so, uh, it's a, yeah, so I think, that it's a, and I was interested also then in somebody like Rutherford, partly because, you know, it's a very well-known fact that many careers were made in and across empire, you know, imperial careering. Um, and he was... Um, started in London, I went, I think then went to Jamaica, then to Grenada, and then on to Durban. Um, so I was interested in him as a kind of a, a you know, a sort of, I suppose, if, if you like, a sort of typical uh, imperial uh, career in, 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 in customs. Um, and uh, there was another bit of your question, which I think I've forgotten. Oh yeah, uh, so that was just sort of how how might one uh, how might one think about how the modes and mechanisms of hydrocolonial governance uh, as shifting across the nineteenth century? Okay, um, so so I think it, it probably it, it it would depend a lot on the particular port and its own trajectory. Um, in the case, for example, of Durban, I think it it just be, became bigger and grander and more pretentious, if you like. So um, Durban was initially a very small port. Um, it then, as you were saying, well, it, t- today it's an extremely large port. From the 1880s, for a variety of reasons, it starts to expand dramatically. And with it, customs becomes very, very powerful. So they become, you know, their personnel expands, their power expands, their bureaucratic, um, you know, apparatuses expand. Um, so, yes, I think it, it, it would vary from port to port um, how that history played out. Thank you so much for, for that. And I just also want to note that you end this chapter with a coda that examines land reclamation and submarine engineering as the infrastructural conditions undergirding the custom house. Uh, so here, I just wanted to pose the question, what implications did these oceanic imaginaries, this idea of conquering the coastal waters, pose for other littoral, uh, littoral communities and how they envision their relationship with, with the ocean? Okay, so and 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 so 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 just to rewind a bit, you know, one example of that would be the ways in which um, access of colonised 
communities was curtailed, both by the, the port city, which becomes increasingly fortified as part of this whole process of colonial maritime uh, control. Um, the beach, also increasingly, the beaches around Durban become defined as spaces of white leisure, and so actually literal access to the beach is, is often curtailed. Um, and that just, you know, of, in, introduces a much longer history of, uh, in, in, in South Africa, of sort of this very racialized access to waterfronts. And very often, especially under uh, apartheid, when there was this very severe uh, racial segregation of beaches, many um, uh, black South African communities were relegated to extremely dangerous beaches. Um, you know, so that's one of the, I suppose, the, 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 the longer trajectories. You know, they had access to small beaches, but they were, the water was extremely dangerous. Um, so also, I, th I think the, 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 the other example that's useful to think of is the Durban has a large Indian diasporic community who are mainly indentured laborers, and many of those who stayed on turned to fishing, uh, both for subsistence but also as a, a, a as a form of livelihood, and that also then you know your, the the points of access were increasingly eroded, um, you know as 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 this colonial governance of the coast extended. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I think that this might be a good place to sort of examine your second chapter in relation to some of these themes that you've just posed. Uh, your second chapter titled customs and objects on a hydrocolonial frontier, really hones in on customs, procedures, and protocols, and foregrounds how the rituals of identification were imbricated within the maritime environments that they were embedded in, as well as the objects with which they dealt. So how do these processes of customs tracking of cargo unfold from the ship to the lighter to the dock? Uh, and upon what infrastructures and whose labors were these processes reliant what were the protocols of, of identification that these custom officials adhered to? And how were they shaped by the specific materiality of the objects with which they dealt? I know that these are some questions and themes that you've sort of addressed uh, earlier in this interview as well. So I would just love to hear more about that. Okay. Um, I, I, yes, it was also... Um, one of the things I learned through this book, in fact, is the very complicated procedure of unloading a ship. So, you know, the point has often been made that um, until the invention of containerization in the 1960s, most cargo was, a lot of it was moved by hand. So it was an incredibly complicated and painstaking process. And it would start in the hold where you would have both uh, gang uh, dockside laborers um, and customs officials. So the customs officials then would be, um, you know, counting and checking, and this the stuff would then be moved. Some of it could then be winched, um, you know, and that would be guided by a foreman of the workers. So a sort of worker who'd gone up through the ranks, and that was quite a. It required very intricate forms of communication between different groups, so between the foreman, between the workers, and between the customs official, because obviously it's potentially really dangerous that the stuff didn't fall on somebody. Um, and so, you know, it, it was a very complex and quite, I think, required quite in, in intimate forms of interaction between customs officials and, 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 and workers, um, which I think is often denied because if you the, the, the stuff that you see in the archives, they're very much presenting themselves as this you know the, the sort of top one of the sort of top ends of the colonial civil service, and they're trying to present it as a sort of you know white male only enterprise, which it you know it's it it, 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 it certainly was what wasn't. So um, I think also it's really interesting to think about. The, and then any forms of smuggling would have required some forms of cooperation between customs and uh, dockside workers. Um, there were also, um, you know, forms of cooperation so that people might, for example, accidentally or cause, you know, make it appear accidental that, say, some bags of rice had fallen and split on the dockside. And then that became... Um, you know, it was a sort of perk of the job. Once the sack was broken, 
uh, workers could then claim claim that. So, and that I think required quite sort of sophisticated forms of sort of uh, cooperation. But of course, it all had to really be 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 below the radar. Um, One thing that this book doesn't really look at is obviously dock workers were incredibly well organised. Um, and you know both within themselves and then often between um, uh, in, in, internationally and Durban also was a very famous uh, site of a very very well um, organised uh, dock dock workers. Of course, and what you just said really sort of reminds me of parallel the parallel context of Bombay and Singapore in the late nineteen early twentieth centuries as well, where dock site is really where you witness these forms of intercommunal. Uh, relationalities being built and of course you know there's 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 a rich history to be written about uh unionizing and uh, organizing among uh among the the dockside workers in both these places but at the same time if one were to think about the environment the material conditions under which uh custom officials and the dockside workers labored in it obviously you know provides a, a space really to think about how um, these everyday practices of like intimacies and subversion sort of played out in in a very sort of specific environment. And here, the other sort of uh, intervention that you make in this chapter, which I found to be really sort of uh, interesting as well, is that you write against the view of the custom house as, quote, an anti-literary space of clodish bureaucrats. Um, you really foreground the need to reckon with these practices of inspection and identification as a distinctive form of reading that comes out of the intimacy between official object and environment. And of course, you know, in recent years, we've come to be familiar with various modes of readings and literary studies, so symptomatic, distant, closed surface, paranoid, reparative, and of course, a slow reading as you propose in your uh, book, Gandhi's Printing Press. Um, What are the critical and interpretive stakes of understanding the custom house as a space of reading and how uh, what's the import here in understanding processes of identification as a form of reading in and of itself okay thank you i, I think i became very interested in these forms of reading as actually quite modern you know the temptation is to think of them as, as sort of quaint and old-fashioned but in fact they are very the argument i make is that they are actually really quite post-humanist object-oriented, and quite similar to digital modes of reading. Um, so, you know, the, if, if you think about digital modes of reading, you have these mass corpuses where reading is done algorithmically, which is a, a, actually a form of sampling, um, you know, in its, I suppose, in its simplest way. And that the literary, t- that the, the, the corpus is not intended for the literary critic, it's intended for the algorithm. And so I say this is very, very similar to what you see in the customs house, you know, where um, the the customs read by metadata, which is obviously a big thing in, you know, digital literary criticism. They do not regard themselves as the addressees of the text, um, and they read absolutely by sampling. You know, so this is a very interesting sort of modern form of, um, you know, kind of post-humanist and very object-oriented form of reading. Thank you so much for that. And turning now to the third chapter, uh, which I think was the, really the, the chapter that sparked of the inspiration for your book, which is Copyright on the Hydrocolonial Frontier. It focuses on the contradictory processes of copyright legislation across the imperial, colonial, and international scales. Uh, you argue here that British copyright possess a racializing function concerned at once with both property and propriety, Uh, So here, the question I want to pose is what accounts for the practical and legal intricacies that undergirded these uh, contending copyright regimes and how the copyright law, um, its emphasis on trade descriptions and marks of origin, come to assume this racializing function? What was this relationship to other doxet regimes, for instance, health inspection protocols or immigration restriction procedures? Um, And how does one think of copyright as it unfolds uh, across the 19th century? Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I must say I got very fascinated by this whole question of copyright. And what I saw was just, I think, nobody really knew what was going on. You know, it was, I think, you know, there was this imperial copyright legislation, which in theory was sort of apparently supposed to blanket empire, but only really applied in some places. Then you had 
colonial copyright, which was slightly different things. Then you had the Berne Convention, which in theory also apparently had a universal application, but didn't really. Um, and I think copyright is actually quite a difficult thing to understand. So I think very few people really knew what was going on. There were wildly sort of contradictory forms of legislation. And um, I think so, so what I really became fascinated with was the way in which copyright as a legal instrument is changed by the circumstances that it migrates into. So we often, I think people still tend to think about copyright as this kind of legal instrument that is sort of more or less the same across the world. And what I became interested in is how radically different it appears to be if you look from the colonial dock side, where, for example, the author, they had no interest at all in the author. You know, the author was some person a thousand miles away. They simply did not enter into the calculation. Rather, what they were interested in was they treated, you know, copyright um, under legislation of what was called mark of origin, you know, so made in England, made in Australia, which um, all goods in, in certain stages of empire were supposed to carry. And so copyright then could be seen under this legislation could be seen as a, a, a kind of mark of origin. It was a sign where this thing had been manufactured. So firstly, it's, it's you know, so any idea then of, you know, authorship, legal personality was of absolutely no consequence, and rather that it was this logistical reading um, and this focus on copyright as a sign of propriety that this object was safe and could be in, admitted and therefore you know, was implicitly a sign of racialization. Um, you know, that's, so, 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 so that's the argument I make. Um, if I can just say two little footnotes. The one is also it became an instrument of uh, for booksellers or merchants to compete against each other. You could use it to stop the books of your competitor coming in by claiming that they were pirated. Um, and you, then you would get a sort of couple, you know, weeks or several months advance on your competitors. And then just also interestingly and importantly, African writers were great, um, very keen on copyright because it was a way of claiming a right. Um, so it was a way of constituting yourself as a rights-bearing subject. So in fact, Africans' understanding and use of copyright is much closer to what we think of as copyright, and this dockside understanding was uh, you know, much more about using copyright as an instrument of racialization. That is incredibly fascinating, and I think that in some ways that, that seems to me to be a counterintuitive argument in, in some respects that the sort, of, uh, the sort of understanding of copyright that was being advanced by many of these African actors really hewed much closer to our contemporary legal understanding of copyright as, as an instrument of uh, intellectual property. I, I also want to note here that, you know, like recent work in literary studies as well as legal realism, critical legal studies have really problematized the premises of conventional theories of intellectual property. And it poses a question, you know, must law recognize the death of the author? And I think that here what you so brilliantly do in this chapter is to really illustrate that this has a longer genealogy that, you know, if we were to trace the emergence of colonial copyright as um, in its sort of distinctive itinerary apart from the Euro-American history of copyright, you, you find that there's this sort of, um, this sort of overwhelming concern with uh, racialization that almost trumps questions around legal personhood, around authorship, around labor and property. And I found that to be just incredibly sort of uh, exciting. Here, I, I think that the last point that you brought up, I think really sort of dovetails well with uh, your fourth chapter on censorship. Uh, it's titled Censorship on a Hydrocolonial Frontier. And here you really turn to the question of censorship and you examine how tax collectors and officials attempted to read logistically. Um, you've sort of brought up earlier um, a little bit about these modes of logistic uh, reading. Uh, you, you, you call it a form of object-oriented mode of reading. Um, but what I'm most interested in here is that this chapter focuses on two specific moments. So first, the South African War or the Anglo-Boer War of 1899-1902, when customs uh, assume a quasi-military role in the censorship of pro-Boer material. And second, growing anti-communism in the 1920s and 30s as military censors extended the style of logistic reading inaugurated by custom officials. Um, 
So here, my question here is, what are the continuities that one might observe across these two moments? And in what ways were they distinct? And how does one make sense of the historical transition between, say, these two moments of censorship with what comes later under the apartheid regime? Okay, thank you. So I think just firstly, the the, the I think one of the useful reasons to look at censorship in the dock side is that you see censorship much lower down. I think a lot of studies of censorship tend to look at the very top committees and assume that every that that the you know censors read everything. This is a very interesting example of the censors actually read very little. Um, so that I think is important. Just as regards these two moments, the Anglo-Boer War and the sort of early stages of you know of growing anti-communism and very early stages of what would become the Cold War. Um, partly these were very prominent in the archive. Um, so that's how I ended up focusing on them. But I was also really particularly interested because I think you're seeing the layers that go into the making of authoritarian regimes and also the making of authoritarian censorship regimes. So there's that whole idea that you, you've got the sort of um, apparent, you know, the, the automatic authority of the uh of the military, um, it's overlaid then with this idea that you are sort of fighting the good fight against some, you know, coming evil. Um, and then also, of course, the apartheid regime itself partly draws on some of these earlier, you know, very paranoid modes of customs reading, of seeing things as contaminated or impure in some way. So I think I was interested in the way of all of those are sort of adding and and kind of strengthening each other. Um, and, then, and then, of course, just terribly briefly, the apartheid regime partly tried to say we were setting up a new system because it's going to be much more professional than the customs people. They said, that, you know, the customs weren't professional readers. We're going to have sort of professional readers, although they did continue to draw on some of the older techniques of, of customs. That makes a lot of sense, uh, I think. And I think that here your emphasis on uh, the dock site space as a site of uh, improvisational censorship really sort of... Uh, orients our understanding of censorship away from these macro level um, processes of, of, you know, like of, of assuming that censorship proceeds from a set of predetermined logics to really understanding censorship as something that occurs on the ground. Um, I think that here your other sort of main uh, intervention, in my view, is really to sort of trace the continuities between these early modes of censorship with subsequent the rise of uh, the subsequent rise of, author of authoritarianism uh, under the apartheid regime. And I thought that that was just incredibly convincingly done. Um, here, perhaps to shift gears slightly to the concluding chapter, uh, dark side genres and post-colonial literature. Um, the conclusion examines the implications of these dockside reading regimes on various models of the book, with a focus on the relationships between shipwreck narratives, port city genres, and a farm novel. How did the protocols of dockside reading spill into literary practice, and what were the concomitant ideas of colonial authorship that these reading protocols authorized? Uh, where might we observe these models of intellectual production and authorship in practice? And in what ways did port logistics and infrastructure produce anti-imperial, anti-apartheid models of authorship? Okay, thank you. Thank you. So I, I think that, that, that the, the conclusion, I think, really tries to do two things. On the one hand, it says if we think about this kind of these, the formation of literary institutions in the dock side, it requires us also then to thread together different parts of South African literature. So the shipwreck narrative has been always been really important, and the farm novel has been really important. Um, and so what I argue is that it's really useful if we think about the dock side as a site of, the, of a sort of infrastructural literary histories. It the those infrastructures are intended to overcome the problem of shipwreck. They also land settlers of the right race and class. And then, of course, they send them on their way into careers in the colony. And one of those, obviously, is this idea of uh, 
becoming a farm owner. So I say, you know, it, it becomes a useful way then of thinking about South African literature across land and sea. Um, just in terms of, I, th I think it also, the, the conclusion says, you know, it produces particular ideas of what the book is or should be. Um, and so it produces different models of the book. One of them is this idea of, you know, the hardbound, great book from Britain that's been copyrighted and is a sort of kind of becomes this kind of, um, you know, charismatic object. And I think it reinforces that. Um, and obviously, you know, the uh, books were often relatively rare compared to printed ephemera and newspapers, those sorts of things. I think the most interesting one I found is this idea of the book as a form. So I think... That for customs officials, what they wanted really was sort of well-behaved books. And a lot of the printed matter that came in was, in fact, a, a pro forma, some kind of version of form. Invoices, blank checks, uh, cricket school books, uh, school registers, diaries, etc., etc. And you can see this in the way that the, 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 the tariff is structured. So very often books or a mere sort of sub subsection of something on you know books, paper, and stationery. It's clearest, in fact, in the Indian um, uh, tariff. So books are a tiny subsection of this huge category called paper and its applications. So they, you know, this this was for them. These books they were well behaved. They didn't have any subversive content, and for them that was what a book should be. And in fact, that is partly really what the colonial novel is. It's a template. It's a form from elsewhere that is then filled with local scribbling. So I think that's you know in some ways these two ideas uh, reinforce each other. Thank you so much for that. Uh, so before we move on to our last traditional question, can you please read a paragraph from the book for our listeners? Okay. And if I can read, I've got, can I read three very short paragraphs? Just of course. To, uh, show and to show to everybody that customs can, in fact, be much more interesting than one thinks. <laughs> I am thoroughly convinced. Okay, so in the early 1950s, the South African Customs and Excise Department issued a list of prohibited and restricted imports and exports. At first glance, the items listed are predictable, protected flora and fauna, historical relics, poisons, pests, perishables, dangerous chemicals, drugs, adulterated food, all those items that needed to be kept in or out to ensure the safety, security uh, of the nation and its citizens. It tucked into the list of some surprises. On the sea list, lurking amongst cacti, carcasses, crocodiles, curios, and cuttlefish, we encounter copyright. On the tea list, ticks, toads, tomatoes, tortoises, and toy pistols leads us to trademark, positioned just above treacle. Other surprises are books, placed amongst bodies, bones, and boots, printed matter, surrounded by prickly pears, primates, projectiles, and prunes, and centers, sensors located between cement and centipedes. These T's and C's did not mean that copyright, trademark, and sensors uh, were prohibited. Quite the opposite, in fact, since customs and excise used these mechanisms to exclude material de deemed, deemed undesirable or counterfeit. In a colonial context, much printed matter came from outside the colony and was fun funneled through the port where customs inspectors checked to see that it was not pirated, seditious, obscene, or in some regions, blasphemous. Wonderful. Um, I think that that paragraph really captures the spirit of, of, of your writing, I think. And I think that what's really fascinating here is the sort of formal equivalence that they're drawing between prickly pears and tortoises with copyright and trademark. That was just really, really fascinating to hear. But well, Isabel, we've taken up a lot of your time. So as a final question, would you mind telling us what you're working on right now and a bit about your current and future projects? Okay, so, so when this book was a lot about books and elements, you know, books that landed up in water. So I started to think about books in relation to other elements, you know, books that were buried, books that were burnt. And then I started to think about books and air and atmosphere and how would I deal with that. And so I got drawn into debates around archives in tropical air. So, you know, tropical air is seen as sort of abnormal in some way. Um, and there are all these debates then about the effect of tropical air on 
uh, archives, and also, of course, a lot of debates about insects in archives. Um, so I became I've become very very fascinated to think about insects in archives and you know insects and paper. So I'm very provisionally working on that, and I think I'll try and produce a short article called "In and on Empire: Insects and Paper." That's fascinating, and I, I'm, I'm really sort of looking forward to to the article because so much of my own experience in the archives has been dealing with printed material that's been eaten by silverfish. So I'm, I'm really sort of, sort of uh, intrigued by 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 your uh, future project on on insects and archives. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the New Books Net- Network, and thank you, listener, for listening to today's episode in which we explored doxite reading by Professor Isabel Halfmeyer published by Duke University Press in 2022. You can find the book on bookshop.org and other outlets. This is your host, Calvin Ng. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.